I told Guy that that worship team is looking younger and younger. <laughs> Maybe that's the reason I'm leaving, because I'm getting older and older. And he said, yeah, they're not, and they're not the young ones in the group. So they're sophomores and juniors. So, wow, uh, thank you. Just got back from camp, and uh, they're all excited. Isn't that cool? Family gets messy sometimes, but it's nice when you have uh, excitement. I know last night I was trying to get some peace and quiet doing a sermon, and my granddaughter is the noisiest little girl. I think that I know. Well, um, I need to thank a bunch of people, and if I start just naming, oh, we, we got to do the offering. Oh, yeah, let's do that. I forget everything else. Let's pray. God, your kingdom is amazing. You don't stand in a balcony and direct everything. You somehow energize us by your spirit and get us involved as well. So that we can actually say that the word of God even is the word of God, but we can also say Luke wrote it. You got Luke involved. You got Paul involved. And Lord, you want to get us involved. And one of the ways we get to do that is by believing and trusting in you so much that we're willing to let go of that precious dollar that we work for. Thank you for people who've been faithful and give out of joy because they love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess I can get real nostalgic. I, when I first came here 28 and a half years ago, they were a group of, of older, older saints in this church. And I adored them. And not one of them is here today. Most of them uh, we've buried. Guy and I, we've many, many times tandem of, of saying goodbye to them. And um, I joyfully look forward to heaven. I know I've got, I look at my sermon file under funeral, funerals. I have, I have family members that I've done funerals for. I have done numerous funerals here for people I dearly, dearly love. And so, um, I don't know, I didn't have that in my notes, but I just want to say thank you to so many, so many, so many people. Um, You know, when you think about living a dream that I get to spend most of my time in a Bible, studying, and wandering through the gray matter of God, and trying to figure out what he's saying, and how to connect, and not just be... um, uh, theological in it, but having it uh, uh, an experience and an organicness of, of knowing him and loving him and um, being provided that opportunity to, to be able to, to sit with him. You've done that. And I, I deeply, deeply thank you. Um, if I start naming names, but I guess there's one name I cannot let go undone is Guy. Um, I was walking my dog the other day, and I thought, how much time has he saved me? Um, just stuff around the church, but just, can you imagine how much time he saved me by, by interviews? Most youth pastors stay a, a year and a half. Can you imagine all the interviews I would have had to do? 
So um, you all love him, and we love him too, and he and Christine. And uh, so, again, I could go on and on and on how I have been benefited by so many, so many, so many over the years. And so I want to I open the Bible this morning. I've wrestled with this for a long time. I maybe need to uh, um, say uh, I'm sorry. I realized I, you know, when I first announced I was, re- I was resigning on the, the 1st of January, I, um, I preached just right along the text that I was on, and um, it was Paul lingering at Troas. So if you can go back and listen to the sermon, and I, I've probably frustrated many of you. I know I've frustrated my son and my wife of lingering over a decision when to leave. Maybe I should have left a, a while back. But um, I think it's a good thing I'm leaving. I think it's good for me. And I also think it's good for you. I'm excited for you. I love this place. I want to see you do well. I want to see you excel. I want to see you grow. I want to see you touch a city. I want to see you do things that you'd never have done with me here. I want to see you go. I want to see you grow. That's my heart. So I I thought maybe I would go back and preach the very first sermon I preached here. Guy said, you know what it was? I said, sure I do. I also know the, the first sermon I preached after I became the pastor here, and it was on the cross. And so I, I was been thinking about this for a long time, and, but here's what I've decided. I've decided to preach on the, on the sermon that, uh, and the verse that's had the most impact in my life. Um, I don't know if this is a true story, but they asked Karl Barth, um, famous theologian. He's getting near the end of his life, and they ask him, what have you learned? What's, how can you succinct it? Put it down. And he said, yes, uh, I can. And here's what I've learned. I learned it at my mother's knee. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. I love a theologian that can put it on the lower shelf, that we understand what it is and what it means And so today, I would like to preach on the gospel in action, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the truth? This is Galatians 2, if you would like to turn your Bibles there. What is the truth that helps you when you are having super-duper marriage problems? What is the truth that will help you and guide you when you are more depressed than you have ever been? What is the truth that will help you when you've gotten a phone call and your world has literally fallen apart? What truth will guide you? Young people went to camp last week and you had an experience with God that took you out of this world and uh, you realize that you need some guidance and help even at the most wonderful period of your life. What truth 
What truth will guide you when you become self-righteous and you think you've got it all together? A lot of money in the bank, all your ducks in a row, and it's looking good, and you think you're the model. Everybody ought to be like me. What truth will take care of that too? What is it that will guide you? What am I relying on when I turn my key? All my office is packed. I mean, it's all gone. My office is ready for the next one. It's clean. All I got to do is hand them my keys, and I'm done. I've had Linnea take me off admins everywhere. I'm not an admin on the planning. I didn't get a planning center. I didn't get to reject. I'm not being here today or next week. Uh, I'm taking off of Facebook. Everything is done. Everything. I walk out. I'm not a pastor no more. What do you rely on? When your world's upside down and the um, politics are like never before, what do you rely on? And I want to tell you one word. Gospel. Gospel. It's the good news. It's the landmark that will be, uh, Paul says, it's the power of God unto salvation. It is transforming good news. It was good news yesterday. It is good news today. And no matter what happens, it'll be good news tomorrow. There's nothing like this that is good news. You could win the lotto, but in a few years, it might not be good news. Now, I want to give you the setting of this chapter 2, Galatians, and the reason it's so important. And the settings, um, often when you look to Scripture, uh, you you study a certain subject, it'll take you to the setting, and you go, you scratch your head. Like, if you were to ask um, the question, where do babies go when they they die? If you were to study that, you know where you will have to go? You will have to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 in that kind of David's dark days after adultery, and that whole, you have to study that, because that's when David said, I can't bring him back when I go there. So if you want to study that great and get that nice little principle out of there, you have to go to a setting that's not so nice. It's almost God's way of saying, I'm going to make you study some tough stuff. If you want to study about Jesus Christ and the greatest autobiographical statement that Jesus ever said about himself, you have to read through Jesus saying, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If, the, if the, uh, the miracles that had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would remain to this day. And oh, by the way, at the end of the chapter, Jesus said, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And then he says, take your yoke upon me, because I am meek. That's what he says about him. I am meek and lowly of heart. And so when you look at principles, often the setting, it's almost like looking at a nice diamond, and it's not in the nicest of setting. That's what I want to do today. I want to give you the setting, and then I want to give you the principle. This is one of those bad days for Peter. Uh, He's having a a bad day. He's being racist. He's been spending time with Gentiles. You know, he's a Jewish individual. He's been spending time with Gentiles. He's been eating bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches. I'm sure he loved bacon. Never had it before. 
Not too long ago, I tried a bacon on a donut. But brothers from Jerusalem came to see him, and when they did, Scripture says he backed off in having fellowship with Gentiles. Now let me set the stage. This is chapter 2, verse 11. I believe Mr. Chad is going to put it up on the screen and use letters up there that I can't read, so I'll go this way. But when Cephas, that's Peter, he came to Antioch, he said, I opposed. I opposed. I'm not trying to give you a Greek lesson today, but the word opposed, you know what, if you look at it transliterated, it is antihistamine. I thought, wow. I guess when I squirt that stuff up my nose, it's, 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 it's combating something. It's coming against a cold. It's coming against the flu or whatever. So that's the word opposed. I opposed him to his face. That's Peter. That's what Paul's saying. Because he stood, not a great word in our culture anymore, condemned. The word condemned is, um, last part of the word, uh, is, there's two words smashed together, is, is gnosko. It just means to know. And then the first part of the word, uh, like the prefix, is kata, which means down. And really what Paul is saying is there's some information that Paul has, that Peter has, that he's pushed down and he's not abiding by. He knows. He knows the right thing to do. He's just not doing it. Anybody out there? Uh, you know, a few months, maybe years ago, I said, well, what happens if we could hang a voice recorder around your neck and it only recorded... When you said in your mind or you said verbally, they ought to do this. She ought to drive this way. She cut me off. Or, and only save the things, in other words, your law. Did you know what Paul says? Paul says in Romans, you don't even live up to your own estimation of your law. You know, God could just take all that little, your own personal voice recorder, not even his word, he could take your personal little voice recorder and indict you and condemn you on what you say others ought to do. In other words, make up your own, you, you can make up your own law. Make up your own law, your own list. And I guarantee you, you will not be able to live it. And so Paul did, Peter did this in front of everyone. And Paul, boy, Paul had a lot of moxie, didn't he? He said, I confronted him. I, to his face. I opposed him to his face. Next verse. For before certain men came from James, James was the leader of the church, he was eating with Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated. He drew back held himself aloof. means to cower and to shrink from what you know to do. It's where we get our word like a horizon. It's almost like he, he saw something and he backed off from it. And then, of course, the word fearing is where we get our word phobia. Um, I love Peter. 
When you ask a lot of people who their favorite Bible character is, a lot of them say Peter because he was, as we say, he made some mistakes. He's making one here. And he's shrinking back. You know, we would call this good old-fashioned racism. And sometimes you can really tell if you're, you're a racist or something. If somebody cuts you off in traffic or whatever, it's like, you know, those people. Yeah, oh, there's my voice recorder going on again. The setting's not so pleasant. And then verse 13, it says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by his hypocrisy. That verse pains me because I love Barnabas. He was transported... He was seduced. And you see another, a number of other people. They were acting. It's this, this hypocrisy is a word, you know, for actors. It's almost like in that word hypocrisy, it means to speak from, out, from under a mask. And so they would switch masks and you think, well, there's hypocrisy going on. So here's the setting. You have racism. You have hypocrisy. You have party spirit. You have people that are solid people being carried away. Peer pressure. You know what peer pressure is? You think it's only relegated to the young in high school or younger? Yes, but it's not just relegated to that age group. Maybe we could just call it sin. Peter was eating with Gentiles, and then when the brass came from Jerusalem, he pulled back. And Paul didn't want two churches. He didn't want a Gentile church, and he didn't want a Jewish church. He wanted one church. Years ago, a real good brother of mine, Reuben Tate, pastoring Second Baptist. And uh, we switched pulpits. And I remember we got to go preach, and man, they got excited. I mean, I'm, where I grew up, I, they, they, they come out of their pews. I mean, it was, it was just fun. And Reuben said, uh, man, I thought we were just switching pulpits. You act like you want this church. Man, you were like preaching. <laughs> and I said, no, no, no. I just, I just had this how I grew up. And Reuben used to almost take offense. I love him but um, calling this the black church. This is a church. Amen. All of us together. Uh, Paul didn't want the segregated kind of thing. He wanted one church. And so he didn't do uh, what we call a Matthew 18 and say, you know, Peter, I need to take you aside and talk to you in the back room. You did this openly, and because you did it openly, I am confronting you openly because there's a lot at stake here. So before I go to this next point, uh, let me ask a couple of questions. I ask myself, how do I... 
How do I corral myself? How do I handle, you know, for a long time, how do you handle a flock? But, you know, maybe more importantly, it's like, how do I handle me? When you have a high with God or when you have a low, what's your guiding light? What is your guiding light? One man wrote a whole book on that most people are making their decisions on what's cool. Do you make it because of a crowd? Is that your guiding light? Or because you've had a good moment? Or you see a strong leader who's got personality and charisma? Or you see financial profitability? What do you do? What are the dynamics and the power that helps you in crunch time to really make the right choice? That's what I want to speak on. And that's, that's the, the, the setting that, that Peter brings us to and Paul confronts. Which brings me to the, that's the setting that brings me to the next verse. Verse 14, that's the last verse. And this is a verse that I have pondered and pondered and pondered for years. If you've been a regular at CLC, you've heard it before. And it's this. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, Peter, if you, though, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, the important aspect is the very first couple of lines. When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth. I wondered, when you read that, why didn't Paul just say, Peter, you're a racist. You're hanging out with Gentiles. Remember when you were back on the roof in chapter 10 of Acts and the sheet came down and it said, kill and eat? And I, I taught you that lesson. I taught you that lesson. Be with Gentiles. Go to Cornelius' house. The spirit fell at Cornelius' house and interrupted him while he was preaching. I taught you this lesson, Peter. You know it. What truth guides you and helps you? And yet that truth doesn't beat you up. Because when I was young, I used to get those principles and truths of Scripture, and it was almost like it would beat you up. What is a source of strength and comfort that leads, that it's more than just a mantra, a mantra, when you say, Jesus, 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 or help me, help me, help me. You realize that this presence of Jesus, presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit is able to benefit you and to help you and to transform you. This truth is good news. It always has been. It always will be. You know, if we're not careful, we look at the Bible as do's and don'ts. There are some do's and don'ts in Scripture. There are principles. There are commandments. There are proverbs. 
And I personally love them. I love to study them. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the the good news. The gospel is a story. Within the confounds of scripture, there's this storyline throughout the scriptures. And it's as easy for as a child can understand. And it's this story. God, even from the foundation of the world, saw the dilemma of man. And he decided to send his son. And that son came into a world. And that son lived an incredible life. And that son died an only unique, one-of-a-kind death. No one died like he did. They tossed him in a tomb. And a tomb, the grave, could not just the grave, not just the ground, not just the rock. Death, the principle, the reality of death itself couldn't hold him. That, my friend, is the gospel. That's the story. And no matter what you're going through, and it, it'll help you whatever difficulty you have when you understand the implications of that story. You want to go and study scripture and study the Proverbs and Psalms and the do's and commandments? I love all of that. But at the heart of this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a story. It's easy for us all to grasp and to understand. Matter of fact, you're going to read about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. When you get home, it's, it's just the first few verses that Jesus died according to the scripture. He was resurrected all according to the scriptures. Everything was done according to plan. And the implications of that gospel is twofold. And I'm going to give them to you. And then we'll talk a little bit more about that verse. The implications of that is this. The first one is that we are a broken, sinful people. You say, well, thank you very much. But if you bypass this, if you don't understand this, because this principle really does answer a lot of questions. I could be walking my dog and enjoying life, enjoying a little exercise, and then have the most awful thought come through my mind. I said, Lord, where does that come from? I want to go back and be innocent and pure like Adam and Eve before the sin in the garden, but we can't do that. Things are broken. It's, we're fallen. And so it's like Jesus said, you know, those things happen. I keep saying somebody cuts me off and, and you, you realize how quick sometimes the anger can come. And you go, where does that come from? This first principle lets us know that we're sinners and we're broken. If we weren't, why would he go to the cross? Why would the gospel be necessary? Why would, it, you know, why would he have to go and, and come? And you know, It's like when human, humanity got its hands on God, we killed him. That's pretty broken. We're pretty messed up. 
And sometimes when you see those messed up things in your life, you think, where do I, where do I take this? What category can I put this in? I think when I first got here, I, I had the secretaries go from Genesis all the way to Revelations in file folders. And when any goodie came, came to my little mitts, I had a place and a category for those stories. I saved them. I just chucked them all. But I've been saving them for 40-some years. We had to have an extra dumpster load that one week because I threw away all that stuff. I'm traveling light now. <laughs> but if you don't have a, have a category to take those things that you're walking through life, if you don't have that category to go to, like, what is this? Am I weird or something? Well, that might be true, but... And that's why when we get together and have fellowship, we realize that we're more in the same boat than we are all in those little individual dinghies out there in the water. And that's, that's why this, this gospel is so precious and so important. We're broken. We wonder with bad thoughts, and occasionally you say, well, I have some bad behaviors You know what scripture tells us before we got saved? We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. The absolute perfect diagnosis of mankind is we are broken and we're sinners. After Kathleen's diagnosis, after Radiation, and I mean, after chemotherapy and Herceptin and all those kind of things, and then that one doctor said, we're thinking about radiation. That's the one appointment that I missed with her. She came home and she was a little bit rocked. And so we went back to Dr. Longo's office. And we sat there, and Dr. Longo had a file that was about that thick on her. He was a gentle soul. We really liked him. And he looked at us and he said, I'm going to tell you what's happened to you. I wish I'd had it videotaped. So he opened that manila folder. Again, it was about that thick. He said, you were diagnosed on this day by this doctor. And this is what it said. And he started flipping pages and, and going through her whole History in less, let's say history, probably six, six or eight months. He was so thorough and so, so wonderfully direct. And when he got through, I thought, my God, I couldn't do that. But when he got through, it was like, that's the diagnosis. And that's what happened. And I walked away from that. And I thought, The initial diagnosis was right on target. The mammogram showed up a spot. And thank God, right now, everything is as good as it can get, as far as I can tell. But when I got out in the car, I cried out, Lord, that's what the Bible does for me. I can flip the pages, and I realize what it says about me is I'm broken. I need a savior. I need help. 
I, I am, I need the gospel. I need it. You know, I used to think I should, I need it when I first got saved, September 6th, 1960, whatever. I need it today as much as I needed it then. The gospel. The first point is, do you know who you are? If you don't die, if you don't start off with something at the right spot, you're not going to end up at the place you need to end up. Talk to Tony Ritter about foundations. This is foundational. This is incredible. But the second aspect of the gospel, I would say as much as you hold on to that one, you need to hold on to this other one. You are more loved than you have ever been loved by anyone who ever existed or ever will exist. Do you hear me? It's no wonder Karl Barth said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Chris Tomlin lifted some words from one of the Wesley boys. I checked his lyric out yesterday. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Of course... Wesley put it a little slightly different, that thou, my God, wouldst die for me. Amazing love. How can it be? I grew up with that. Maybe you have too. But let me say that when you go through crunch time, or maybe you don't know where your next breath's coming from, and this more, it becomes more than just a principle, it becomes a reality that you really do know that Jesus loves you. I sung this to my boys. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Every night I got to rock him to sleep. It was always that song. Jesus loves you, Teddy. Jesus loves you. It's somebody, I, you know, I talk to people and they say, well, I need this, I need this. And I need, I, you know what? You just need to understand. Go to Scripture. Let it, let it come over you. Let, it, let, let the coin drop. Let it come to a consensus. He's like, Lord, I know you love me. It don't feel like you love me, though. It's, it's like you're distant from me. I feel like I'm in the shadows. But when you really understand the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Yes, I know I'm a mess. I know. But at the same time, you see these arms coming around you from both sides. And you think, yes, I need both of these arms for a healthy Christian. I don't want to be around someone who thinks they've got it all together. I don't want to hear somebody preaches that think they've got it all together. I want to hear somebody says, I'm, I'm a sinner. I want to get up here and say, my name is Don. I'm a sinner. I only have one message. And that message is Jesus Christ. He loves you. Often thought maybe the, the key for 
All the folks in the world who don't feel so good about themselves, maybe they need to get a cross and hang around their necks underneath maybe their T-shirt or whatever and look at that cross. We put it out here for a reason because you can't see it behind the screen sometimes, but that cross is vital to this church. This cross is vital to your life. This cross is vital to your well-being. This cross is vital to everything that you do in life. I can't imagine going to a marriage seminar and them not talking about the gospel because it changes and it transforms everything. The gospel. Paul said it is the power, Romans 1, 16. It turned Martin Luther back in the 1500s on his ear. He loves you. He loves you. And you say, but I can throw a bunch of things up and show he doesn't love you. And I can throw the cross up and says, yes, he does. It's not just a mantra. It's reality. It's truth. Now, the, with that principle, when Paul said, it is the power of the gospel. I've always thought, you know, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and I know the power is the Holy Spirit, and I know the Spirit's powerful, and I love the Holy Spirit, but what Paul says in Romans 1.16, he said, it's the power of the gospel. There's a dynamic. When you understand who you are, and that you've broken, and you understand he's with you, and he loves you, there's a dynamic that helps transform you. Power of the gospel, dynamic of the gospel. It's the message that's able to save you and help you with your thoughts. With your directions. With your behavior. Stupid things that you do. So, let me finish that verse with that being the understanding and the dynamic. Paul says, Peter, and again, I'm expecting Peter, Paul to say, Peter, you're a racist. But he doesn't do that. True, he was. But Paul, Paul is an incredible theologian. I love him. What he does is he goes beneath. He goes beneath the behavior. Sometimes when we sin, we see what's sticking out. I have a friend who's in Japan. He couldn't be here today, so he emailed me, and I was thinking about I was I was doing this. Uh, we used, to, we used to meet, he would say something like, um, let's just say out in Pismo, out there by the pier, they were having difficulties with sharks. And so the town council got together and said, you know, uh, we're not having near the tourism that we, I know it sounds like Jaws, but um, <laughs> we're not having the tourism that we should have. So you know what we ought to do? We ought to, we ought to get some people out there. Let's, uh, let's get some fin cutters. We're just going to go out to those sharks and we're just going to cut the fins off. Guys walking around with all these fins, you know, man, really, man. Somebody says, you mean the sharks are still out there? 
I can't see them. Yeah, the sharks are still out there. Well, how stupid is that? But it's a lot easier cutting off the fins than going after the sharks. The same friend would say things like, when you're going through the checkout line at Albertsons or Food for Less or whatever, and there's those girly magazines on there, and you're looking at it, and you're the holy pastor. He says, do you feel, do you feel worse because you looked at it? Or do you feel worse because you think somebody saw you looking at it? Are you just cutting off fins? You know what Paul did here? He wasn't after fins. Peter, I'm going after your heart. I'm going after the the reason that you do things. I'm going after your motivation. Well, this is deep. What do you do what you do? And I guess I'm here to tell you that the gospel, I know who I am. And I know I'm loved. Remember when I first preached this probably 15, 20 years ago, we made this this aisle kind of like a country road. And remember, it's like cars pull to the left or the right, not politically left or right, but you know, they're tow-in, camber, and all that kind of stuff. Your car, your, your car is going to go one way or the other. Where's the tendency of your life going? And how do you keep it filled with the Spirit going up the right way? It's not just cutting off fins. I think at church, we're really good at cutting off fins. We're, we're really good at, when I was a kid, you, know, you smoke and drink and all that kind of stuff. That's the first thing to go because that's what people see. But there's all kind of gossip and all kinds of stuff below the surface that was just rampant in the church. So when we sin, we usually see the symptom. Now, the two words that are really important is the word, he said you're not walking straight with the gospel. You're not straight. What was that word again? Um, Let me read verse 14. But when I saw that they were not walking or were not straightforward about the gospel. Do you know the Christian life, one of the great metaphors of the Christian life is walk. Progressing. Left, right, left, right. Straightforward about the gospel. Straight walking. That word is made up of two words. The first one is straight, is, is ortho. Most people who've had some dental, dental straightening, we know that you go to an orthodontist. So we know that ortho means straight, and pedeo means feet. So we got orthopedeo. That's the word Paul used. You're not walking in line with the gospel. I, again, I've, I've wrestled with this for years. What is Paul saying? Instead of just saying racist, he says, Peter, you got off track. Remember the old NFL? They show you that first and down 10 line marker, the yellow marker, you'd see it going this way. I guess when I first looked at it, I don't know if they're still doing that, but it's like I, the gospel, what Paul is saying is the gospel sends out kind of like a line in front of you, a trajectory. You see, because you know who you are, 
You know that you're loved. It gives you a gyroscope. It gives you an understanding of walking with the Lord. And Peter got off track. And he knew what he was doing. I have searched. And when I was in school, what is the what is the apparatus? What is the mechanism? What is the way that God, you know, when he saves us, he doesn't totally make us perfect, right? So how do you, how do you negotiate through life? How do you walk up this, this road and make sure that you're bringing glory and honor to God? What is the, what is the parameters? What is, when I was a kid, I think I, I felt like there were cables on both sides. It was just illegal. If you go over this line, you're going to, God's going to smack you. When I was in Bible college, we had a big hootenanny. Remember those? And one of my buddies, Larry, got up and said, God's got a big hammer on top of your head. If you don't walk the line of holiness, he'll bash in your head. And we all hoot and hollered and laughed, and it was just, it was a big joke. But isn't that a terrible characterization of God? You know what Paul is pointing a picture here is this. I love you so much. I died for you. I gave everything I have for you. And if you want to quench the Holy Spirit, you know, you have the power to quench the Holy Spirit. You have the power to get off track. You can make stupid decisions. Who hasn't done that? Instead of bashing in your head, when you go to prayer next time, you realize that you have this loving Father that maybe you've hurt and offended. And that power of love, Paul would say, that love that God has for us constrains us. When we were married 10 years, we were in Hawaii. I was sitting on a chair outside the International Market Center and I got hit up by a prostitute. Kathleen was in shopping. Of course. (laughs) And I was dumbfounded. I I said, I'm married. And she said, I don't care. And then I said, I'm happily married. And she said, I don't care. So what kind of love is that? What kind of what kind of understanding is that? When you understand, when you understand from God how much you are loved, you would be stupid getting off this path. Right? Your greatest fulfillment, your greatest joy, your greatest everything is in Him. So if you're a young person, I told myself I'd never say this. (laughs) Things are a lot worse than it was when I was back then. I'm saying it. I feel sorry for them, all the temptations, all the stuff. 
But if you know who you are, you know you've broken. You know there's sin. You know that's going to come. And, but at the same time, you know Jesus Christ loves you like you have never been loved by anyone. And there's nothing you can do to be separated from the love of God. You wow. That's character building. That's life changing. That'll get you through some stuff. Amen. I think I told you this last week, I did a funeral of a twin. Same time I lost my twin. Now the twins were sitting here. I went home. I went, I went back home. And I, I need to go exercise. I need to go walk. I need to get away. I need to go be with the Lord. My world was rocked. It was like all the stuff came together again. I'm like, God, I need to be with you. That's what I'm telling you. Amen. Amen. Am I out of time? Yes. Uh, Peter's last words. 2 Peter 3. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fallen from your own steadfastness. Amen. Last verse. Jeremiah 2. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. If you don't choose him, you end up with putrefied water that you've got to dig through rock to get. And if you choose him, you get a living, vital spring. Wow, don't you love fresh water? Lord Jesus, we pray for blessings on this corner. We pray for continued blessings. We pray for a business meeting next week. We pray that your your love and faithfulness will permeate God, may the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God and salvation, will be evident in our lives. God, thank you. Thank you for the awesome privilege of opening a Bible. I pray your blessing on food and festivities downstairs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. God bless you, and thank you. Amen. Amen. God bless.